Around the year 1908, a failed actor and playwright found his way into the new world of motion pictures. He started out as an extra in silent shorts, but within two years became one of the most important people in filmmaking. He is credited with taking the world of film from one and two reel shorts into feature length motion pictures. One of his first was a three-hour epic, a storytelling marvel that made millions of dollars and influenced many filmmakers for years to come. It was also one of the most racist films ever made, a film often credited to revitalizing a group known as the Ku Klux Klan. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkies. What about the Twinkies? They have 500 years of democracy and peace, and what did that produce? Cuckoo clock. Dallas Right off the top, I must say that this was a difficult one to write. I mean, D.W. Griffith was an amazing filmmaker. On a website called Sense of Cinema, it begins with this introduction. Is there anybody today, any historian, any student of film, anyone with the least political sensitivity, who dares to praise D.W. Griffith? Griffith shaped filmmaking into the style we see today, taking it from a simple little amusement into an art form by adding deep stories and characters. Almost everything he did was amazing and should be admired and celebrated by anyone who enjoys making or watching films today. But of course, there's a dark stain on his resume, a film called Birth of a Nation. That's the truly frustrating part. I mean, if you cut out this movie, or at least the last third, all would be well, but of course, we can't. When Griffith first entered the world of film... It wasn't like it is today. In an interview with a woman named Emily Watson, who was around at the time of the early days of the motion picture, she said, In those days, the movie was regarded as something like a burlesque, and we youngsters were embarrassed to go in to see it. She talks about walking around the block two or three times just to get the courage to go in the door. That's the world that Griffith entered in 1908. Largely due to him, it all changed, and film became one of the most accepted forms of entertainment in the world. On the other hand, he's often given credit for many of the film techniques that he did not create. He wasn't responsible for the close-up or the dolly or pan shots, cross-cutting between different actions, nor did he create the feature film. He just took these ideas and developed them like no other. He realized the power of editing and creative camera techniques, not for the sake of using them, but in service of the character and story. This all sounds great, and the man's face would be carved on the Mount Rushmore of film giants if there wasn't that one film. The Birth of a Nation was a three-hour-long saga that was a technological and storytelling marvel and one of the most financially successful films of all time. It has also been called the most reprehensible racist film in Hollywood history. Film critic Roger Ebert wrote, 
Certainly, The Birth of a Nation represents a challenge for modern audiences. Unaccustomed to silent films and uninterested in film history, they find it quaint and not to their taste. Those evolved enough to understand what they are looking at find the early and wartime scenes brilliant, but cringe at the post-war and reconstruction scenes, which are racist in the ham-handed way of an old minstrel show or a vile comic pamphlet. Just to emphasize how controversial this film is, many consider it as a major factor in the KKK's revival in the 20th century. How much? Well, that's up for debate. So who is this man? David Wark Griffith was born in the mid-morning on January 22, 1875, on a farm in Crestwood, Kentucky. His father was Jacob Wark Griffith, known as Roaring Jake, a Civil War veteran. His mother, Mary Perkins Oglesby, was from an old Kentucky family. She was a deeply religious woman who was strict and hardworking. Griffith later wrote of her that she was a silent sort of woman, so silent and quiet that I never dreamed she loved me until she was 70 years old when I discovered that stern, cold, hard exterior covered a tremendous emotional and affectionate nature that was terrible in its intensity. His father Jacob had looked at the Civil War as an opportunity and joined as soon as the war began. That was before D.W.'s birth, and he stayed in the Army until after it was over. He was wounded at least twice and was known to fight with valor and skill. David would later claim that a northern naval blockade prevented good quality surgical thread from reaching the south and that a surgeon's use of inferior material under crude conditions led indirectly to his father's death over two decades later. His arm, which had been wounded during the war, had never healed properly and, in a way, he thought not only had the South lost, but he had lost as well. He became a heavy drinker who would get intoxicated and tell yarns about his early war days. And as time went on, he also got more and more into debt. He was the type of man who would get drunk on bourbon while his wife and daughter worked out in the field. But the Griffiths managed to have three more children, including David, and David would grow up hearing his father tell grand stories about fighting in the war. How many of these stories were true and how many were just tall tales? Well, we don't know. But Griffith idolized his father and believed anything he heard. He later said, I think the one person I really loved the most in all my life was my father. I often wonder if he cared for anything about me particularly. I am forced to doubt it. His father died when David was just 10, apparently from that wound he had suffered during the war. He left the family with huge debts, and they struggled with poverty. His mother attempted to open a boarding school in Louisville, Kentucky, but after its failure, Griffith quit high school to take jobs to support his family. Although he was always fond of learning and had a love of books, he was always insecure about his lack of formal education. As he got older, he decided he wanted to be a playwright, and he was told the best way to learn the craft was to be an actor on the stage. He began touring with several companies while trying to write his own plays. This was a ten-year journey of touring the country. During that time, he met an actress named Linda Anderson, who became his first wife. 
he only had one of his own work ever performed, a play called A Fool and His Girl, but it failed. Now at this time, being a stage actor was considered one of the lowest jobs one could have. So to save his family an embarrassment, he changed his name to Lawrence Griffith. Now at the time, the only job lower than a stage actor was to be an actor in film, which Griffith, in desperation, became. His first film as an actor was for the Edison Company in 1908. He was 32 years old. Soon he went to work for Biograph as an actor and an occasional writer. And mostly he got small parts. But then the main director at the studio became ill and he was offered a chance to direct. He agreed as long as if it didn't work out, he could go back to being an actor. His first film was called The Adventures of Dolly from 1908, and it starred his wife Linda. The studio loved it, and soon he was under contract as a director. And it wasn't long before he was the main director at Biograph. He worked mostly in one-reel melodramas, leaving the comedies to one of his actors, a fellow known as Max Sennett. When he started, he would film like many of the other directors at the time, with the camera acting more like an audience member in a play, shooting in a wide shot with everything happening in front. But as he went along, he began using the camera in ways that it normally wasn't used. Even though this was a time when the actors and directors were uncredited, he was still becoming very well known in the world of cinema. One of his early and favorite actors was a 17-year-old girl named Mary Pickford. He began to see film as a way to affect social change, like the film A Corner in Wheat from 1909. The film is about a businessman who becomes rich at the expense of the poor. To make it more powerful, he used cross-cutting, contrasting the rich man's life with that of the abused worker. He became frustrated in the conditions he was forced to work, shooting two or three films a week with very limited budgets. What he would like was time to spend rehearsing with the actors, for it was during rehearsals he felt his films really took shape. And it was during one of those rehearsals that two young sisters dropped by to watch, Lillian and Dorothy Gish. They were ten-year veterans of the stage. Griffith took notice of them almost instantly, and soon they were acting in his film. Lillian would have a lifelong friendship with Griffith and go on to act in all of Griffith's most acclaimed films. His films at Biograph did very well and soon were influencing the entire film industry. Between 1908 and 1913, he directed over 450 shorts. But he wanted to do more. By now, Thomas H. Hintz released the 50-minute The Battle of Gettysburg, and Griffith wanted to do his own feature-length film. He made Judith of Bethulia, which was over an hour long, but Biograph wasn't happy. They insisted on shorter films, which they thought were more commercial. So Griffith left and took his crew and actors with him. But now we're going to take a little break from my storytelling to hear what Nancy Fry has to say about D.W. This week, I'm going to go off on one of those meanderings tangential to the topic at hand, which this week happens to be early film pioneer D.W. Griffith. 
I love it when Jeff picks a subject like this because it encourages me to learn more about something or somebody beyond a dinner party casual conversation level. Like many of you, I thought of Griffith as the intolerance guy and not much more. I'm also one of the many who have seen parts of intolerance but not the whole epic film. The same goes for Birth of a Nation. I knew it existed and have seen clips from it but have never seen the whole thing. Trying to sugarcoat the clan was a big misstep and I feel like Griffith spent the rest of his career kind of making up for it. What really amazes me is the sheer volume of his filmography. Griffith made scads of films. It seems like most of them were little morality plays, usually kind of bleak, interspersed with massive epics like Intolerance. You can find many of them on the Internet Archive or embedded on Wikipedia, which also came as kind of a surprise. Now, the best way to see any movie is on the silver screen, of course, but that opportunity is long gone for most of the early days of film. I'm very fortunate in that I've actually had that opportunity not once, but several times. I live near Seattle and the beautifully restored Paramount Theater, which started out life as a movie palace. When I was in college in the 80s, the Silent Film Society, at least I think that's what it was called, did yearly showings of specially selected films with live music provided by members of the Seattle Symphony. Uh, another group does that today, and they use the in-house Wurlitzer organ at the Paramount, which is also awesome. The first one I saw was the 1922 Douglas Fairbanks Sr. adventure picture, Robin Hood. It was so epic and beautiful, I actually missed it up during the opening sequence. Now don't get me wrong, the 38 Errol Flynn version is a classic, and I love it. But the 1922 version, a century old as I record this, is a sprawling, muscular epic that almost makes the Flynn version seem a bit anemic by comparison. Now Flynn was a man's man, but Fairbanks was insanely athletic. He was a tough act to follow. But I digress. The second film in that series of that year was Broken Blossoms. Unlike D.W. Griffith's grand epics featuring grand set pieces with literally casts of thousands, Broken Blossoms is set in a grimy slum of the 19th century or early 20th century London. Released in 1919, it's another one of Griffith's dark morality plays, starring the ethereal Lillian Gish as a poor waif abused and terrorized by her boxer father, and Richard Bartlemas as a quiet Chinese missionary who tries to rescue her from her miserable life. With tour de force performances from Gish and Bartlemas and some well-done set decoration, it's a lovely film despite the grim setting. Now, some people today will probably take issue with the casting of Bartlemas as a Chinese man, but I would politely invite those people to calm down. Hollywood eventually got past this kind of casting, but in those early days, even more than today, film projects were built around known stars. You were going to see a Bartlemas picture, or a Gish picture, or a Douglas Fairbanks picture, and you didn't care what the story was. This is what guaranteed box office receipts. 
The important thing in this case is the sensitive and sympathetic portrayal of the Chinese, and in that area, the film excels. The following year, Gish and Bartlema starred in another Griffith period piece, Way Down East. I haven't seen this one yet, but it's on my list. The film features the famous action set piece in the third act, with Gish unconscious on an ice floe, headed toward a waterfall, rescued by the intrepid Bartlemus. In these early days, the actors did their own stunts, and this scene is insane. I won't go into it too much, since I'd like to cover this film here on the podcast sometime, but I'll say this much. Frozen hair. A few decades ago, when I was doing Civil War reenacting in California, I made the startling discovery that one of my cavalry pals put me at only two degrees of separation from D.W. Griffith. My friend's grandfather, with whom he shared a first name, was Richard Bartlemus. You know, I guess you never know who you'll run into. Thanks, Nancy. And uh, to be honest, I've never watched Tolerance from beginning to end all in one sitting. I've seen sections of it here and there, but I should really sit down and watch the whole thing. As far as uh, Griffith's later films, like Way Down East, we should do those on the show one day. They are pretty remarkable films. Anyway, let's get back to my D.W. Griffith story. After a few features like The Battle of the Sexes and The Escape, he was ready to work on a masterpiece. He wanted to make a longer picture, one that could be a whole evening's entertainment. He based it on a play called The Klansman by Thomas Dixon Jr. Dixon used his own novel as a basis for the play. It was part of his Ku Klux Klan trilogy. And even then, people realized that something was wrong. An editorial about the play in the Washington Post said, The play does not possess even the merits of historical truth. It is as false as Uncle Tom's Cabin and a hundred times more wicked, for it excites the passions and prejudices of the dominant class at the expense of the defenseless minority. The play had been banned in many cities for its portrayal of blacks and the KKK. So it would be hard for me to believe that Griffith didn't know exactly what he was doing when he decided to make it into a film. It played on the fears that many in the South had about blacks rising up and taking over the land. Griffith said when he read the book, The Klansmen, he skipped quickly through the book until I got to the part about the Klansmen, who, according to no less than Woodrow Wilson, ran to the rescue of the downtrodden South after the Civil War. I could see the Klansmen in a movie with their white flags flying. Sound incredible? Well, one must remember that even the President of the United States, Woodrow Wilson, was a supporter of the Ku Klux Klan. He allegedly said, The white men were roused by a mere instinct of self-preservation, until at last there sprung into existence a great Ku Klux Klan, a venerable empire of the South, to protect the Southern country. The film is an amazing piece of work, far ahead of anything else. The Civil War battle scenes were unbelievable. The true horror of the war came through. But it was after the war that things get ugly. Blacks are shown as evil drunks out to rape white women and children, and are out to rise up against their former masters. 
Vincent Brown from Harvard University said this of how black people were portrayed in the film. Black people were too lazy and ignorant to fully master the citizenship that they were offered by Reconstruction. And I will point out that all the main black people in the film were played by white actors in blackface. And of course, the heroes of the film were the Ku Klux Klan. They come to the rescue. They were the saviors of the South. The film was hailed as the greatest film ever made. On the other hand, it was accused of inspiring horrible racial hatred. Many theaters, even at the time, canceled its showing. I've heard it suggested that that's exactly what Griffith was hoping for, to stir emotions in all that watched. It was art, and it was the purpose of art to create something that no one can be indifferent. In 1976, Carl Brown, who was an assistant cameraman on the film, said, And the fact that the showing of the Klansmen started riots and put blood on the streets was proof, beyond proof, that it was a great and powerful picture, regardless of what any critic might have to say about it. If creating angry emotions was D.W. Griffith's main purpose, I guess you can say he succeeded because the film still arouses passion and provokes protests over a hundred years after it was released. One of the groups that protested the film was the newly formed NAAPC. While they failed in their efforts to limit the film's release, the group's membership doubled soon after. But in the end, the picture was a massive success, making millions of dollars. Griffith was now considered the greatest filmmaker in the world. And he was also getting ready for his next film, a simpler motion picture called The Mother and the Law. It was a social drama about regular people caught in social injustice. But the studio came to realize that big films brought in big profits. And those that invested in A Birth of a Nation wanted another film on a grand scale. So Griffith began expanding The Mother and the Law. He quickly added a second plot to the film that took place in Babylon. Now Griffith thought that the treatment of Birth of a Nation was a form of censorship. He had written a pamphlet called Intolerance, the Root of All Censorship. So he decided this new film would be about intolerance. For that, he added a third section of the film about the crucifixion of Jesus, and then a fourth about the 1572 St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. The film was to demonstrate humankind's persistent lack of intolerance through the ages. I wonder if D.W. ever saw the irony in that film compared to his last. Some assistant directors on the film were people such as Eric von Stroheim, Todd Browning, and Woody Van Dyke, all who went on to be important and noted Hollywood directors in later years. The film clocks in at three and a half hours and jumps back and forth between four stories, and everything was done on massive scales. The action and violence were something that no one had ever seen before. The sets built towered over Hollywood. And many greeted the film with bewilderment. One man described it as flipping back and forth between four movies on your TV and trying to keep track of all of them. After an early showing that didn't go well, he added a provocative scene to the Temple of Love sequence and also a linking device starring Lillian Gish. Griffith thought he had created a film that would unite all mankind and stop all wars. 
Well, not so much. Many describe the film as a financial failure, but it did make its money back. It did lose money due to an extravagant roadshow. He had 12 roadshow companies, each with their own orchestra, touring the country. Soon after, the United States entered World War I, and Griffith, although opposed to the war, was offered a chance to make a film for the Allied cause. He was the only filmmaker to receive permission to tour the front. His original idea was to film the actual war, but with the camera and lenses available, it proved impossible. So Griffith restaged great battles. Eventually, he returned to Hollywood to finish the film using the Gish sisters in a basic reworking of Birth of a Nation. He called it Hearts of the World. It was another triumph for Griffith. Griffith apparently viewed Hearts of the World as what it was, a propaganda film geared to create enthusiasm for the Allied cause. Lillian Gish later said, Hearts of the World enjoyed a great success until the armistice, when people lost interest in war films. The film inflamed audiences. Its depiction of German brutality borders on the absurd. Whenever a German came near me, he beats me or kicks me. And she also said, I don't believe Mr. Griffith ever forgave himself for making Hearts of the World. War is a villain, he repeated, not any particular people. Soon after the war, he formed United Artists with Charlie Chaplin, Mary Pickford, and Douglas Fairbanks. They each agreed to make five pictures a year, but by the time they got up and running, feature films were now the thing, so the concept was quickly abandoned. Griffith would leave United Artists by 1924, but before he did, he directed the film Broken Blossoms, another film focused on intolerance. Lillian Gish plays a young girl named Lucy who is an abusive boxer father. She meets a Chinese immigrant named Chang, and it all leads to a very unhappy ending with all three dead. Sorry about the spoiler. It's a good but depressing film. And even though the part of Chang is played by a white actor in Yellowface, his character is played with a sensitivity not common in the early days of film. In one of the most famous shots of the film, Gish, as a young child, uses her fingers to force a smile. The film was such a downer that Adolf Zucker, who financed the film, said to Griffith, Why don't you put your hands in my pocket and steal my money? Griffith bought the film back and released it through United Artists, and it was another great success. Soon after, he left Hollywood, a place he never felt comfortable in, and set up his own studio out on the East Coast. After a few small films to complete a contract, he purchased a play for a record amount called Way Down East. Most thought he was crazy. And for eight weeks, he rehearsed it with his actors before filming began. It's the story of Anna, played by Gish. She's tricked by a wealthy philanderer into a fake marriage. He leaves her after she becomes pregnant. After the baby ends up dying, she meets a man, David, and they fall in love. It all comes crashing down after the family learns of her past. She's ordered out of the house, into the snow. And in one of the greatest scenes, during an actual blizzard, she collapses onto a chunk of frozen ice on the cold river. She heads for a waterfall and David rushes to save her. 
The end was filmed during a real blizzard in very cold conditions. Gish's bitter cold face was real, and day after day she was required to lay on a chunk of ice in nothing but a thin dress, her hand laying in cold ice water. It got so bad for her that eventually she said she couldn't take it anymore. So for some shots, a double was used. This double claimed years later that she still felt pain in her hand from being in the icy river. But it all paid off. Another triumph for Griffith. But then after, things started to go downhill for Griffith. By now, many young directors, inspired by the master, were making films that rival his. His last great film was from 1921, called Orphans of the Storm. It starred the two Gish sisters as two sisters, orphans, one being blind. The film finishes with what now was a typical Griffith ending, one sister being rescued from the guillotine at the last second. And while the film today is considered one of his best, it wasn't profitable at the time. At the same time, a lot of his company began to leave. The Gish sisters took on a job with another company, and his longtime cameraman had problems with alcoholism. But it was more than that. Hollywood and the big studios were taking over. Each of these studios were pumping out over 50 pictures a year, most low-cost films that would appeal to the general public. These profits would pay for the expensive prestige pictures. Out on the East Coast, Griffith took notice and attempted to do the same. But he just didn't have the ability to make these cheap little pictures. And the public always expected to see a grand epic from Griffith. So these little cheapies met with a lukewarm reception. And of course, he spent too much on them anyway, so his attempt at making these little money-making pictures failed and put him more into debt. He even attempted an early sound film, but that didn't help. One of his last attempts at saving his studio was the film called America, about the American Revolution. It was inspired by William H. Hayes, the creator of the Hayes Code, who said he wanted to see more patriotic films. Of course, Griffith went way over budget. The film was another failure, being described as dull by many critics. He even attempted to make a couple of comedy films with W.C. Fields. The world was now entering the Roaring Twenties, and Griffith was seen as old-fashioned, Young audiences had no use for his films. He lost his studio and traveled to Germany to make films. He made the film Isn't It a Wonderful Life, a story that dealt with a family of Polish refugees living in Germany. He was hired by Paramount to replace their star director, Cecil B. DeMille. They wanted DeMille to make a film called The Sorrow of Satan. Arguments over the film caused him to quit, so Griffith took over. Griffith didn't want to make the film either, but the studio insisted. He found the experience very frustrating dealing with a huge studio. The film went way over budget and was a huge failure, the studio putting the blame solely on Griffith. He was devastated. In 1930, he directed Abraham Lincoln, an episodic biography of the 16th President of the United States starring Walter Houston as Lincoln. It was his first all-sound picture. And to his credit, he pushed sound films in ways no other filmmaker had done. Because of the limitations sound put on the camera, most filming was done with static shots. But Griffith was able to find a way to put a lot of camera movement into his film, again pushing the medium. And although it was a critical success, it didn't do well at the box office. 
By now, he had started to drink heavily. His last film was 1931's Struggle, starring vaudevillian Hal Sheckley and John Houseman's wife, Zita Johan. Maybe the film reflected on himself, because the film is about the dangers of alcoholism. And it was a disaster from the beginning. He was now a 60-year-old man, and he would spend his nights pacing up and down trying to find a way to save the film. It received the worst reviews of his career, and was pulled after one week. Now the myth goes that David Wark Griffith, when his film career ended, lived in poverty, alone and forgotten. Well, this is not true. He lived a pretty comfortable life, in relative prosperity. He released Birth of a Nation as a sound film, and even filmed a prologue with Walter Houston in which he tried to justify its racial views. In 1933, he was hired to star in a twice-weekly radio show featuring his stories about the origins of Hollywood. He ended up retiring to Kentucky and lived a pretty good life with his family. He married the 26-year-old Evelyn Baldwin, In 1936, he was given a special award at the Oscars ceremony, and he also presented the Best Actress and Best Actor Award to Betty Davis and Victor McLannan. After he received his award, he was given a two-minute standing ovation. His drinking caused his second marriage to end in 1947, and a year later, he died of a cerebral hemorrhage. He was 73 years old. At the ceremony, many silent film stars attended, including Charlie Chaplin, Max Sennett, Will Hayes, Cecil B. DeMille, and even Madame Sol Tawan, a black actress who appeared in Birth of a Nation and was a longtime friend of Griffith. We crossed the last pass of the Andes. Below us, for the first time, we can see the jungle. In the morning, I read mass, and then we descended through the clouds. A little bit before I go, I'll make this quick because I know the show lasted a little long today. The big question I have to ask, and I don't know the answer to, is how much should people be blamed for for believing what they were taught as a kid? That's a thought that I always think about when I think of D.W. Griffith. Anyway, next week we'll be looking at the classic film Agiri, The Wrath of God by Werner Herzog. Another one of my favorites. And I'll also have some announcements about what's going to happen with the show during the month of July. Now, very important, I want you to know this. I have a Facebook page. I would love to hear your comments. It's called Celluloid Days. Join us. Also Twitter, at coffee underscore days. You can follow me there. I usually post stuff in the mornings. I'm always looking for film suggestions. The more strange and unusual, the better. You can email me at daysofcelluloid at gmail.com. Days of Celluloid, all being one word. And if you could leave me a review wherever you stream this podcast, I'd be forever grateful. Just make it a good one, all right? I want to thank Nancy for contributing to today's show. Sorry I wasn't more organized, Nancy. We could have done more. Thanks for all of you for listening. I'll be back next Monday with something incredible. Bye. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They had 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Two dollar smoothie pass. 
Can you play the piano? I can't. 